Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, a Kingkiller Chronicle reread podcast. We are your hosts, Will and Phoenix. Let's get into it. Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, Season 2, Episode 41, Just So, where we will be looking at Chapter 88 of The Wise Man's Fear through the lens of In Medias Res. All right. Please forgive us. We are rusty. Also, we're still doing lightened episodes because as many times as I have moved, this one is probably the most tiring. It was definitely the biggest one, I feel like. I don't think it was because we did move from Seattle to Portland. We also weren't trying to do a podcast in the middle of that one either. Right. We weren't trying to do that, but I feel like... That one was bigger, but this one's more tiring. We had more to clean on this one. Yeah. Also, it's taking a while to get kind of put together. We have some places that are really put together, and then we have places like the room we're recording in that are not. We're working on it. So for now, as we warned before, probably going to do lightened episodes that don't have an interesting fact unless... Some of you maybe want to join our Discord and help us find interesting facts so that we don't have to brain good. Brain gooding is hard. And then also we're not going to do the recap at the beginning for a little while. Still trying to be kind to one another and not enter into potential or cheeky punishments for one another. At least for a little bit. I want to be kind to you and I would like you to be kind to me. So yay. We will get back to those because I think that yours are really, really fun. And I also appreciate it when I'm listening to a book podcast to get a little recap, especially if I haven't read the book in a while. So with that, let us get our disclaimers out of the way and our explanation of the pod. It's been a while. Sorry. Each week, we will be examining a section of the wise man's fear through a chosen lens and figuring out what we can take from the text and apply to our real lives. We will then share a recommended thing of the week. We have one of those this time. And finally, we will wrap things up with seven words from the book and seven words from our own lives. We will maybe possibly do a Phrenemos if one of us has one. I don't really. I kind of do. So I'll at least touch on it. Okay. Before we begin... Let's get some disclaimers out of the way. First of all, we are in no way affiliated with Patrick Rothfuss or his publisher, Daw Books. Second, spoilers. We are in the middle of The Wise Man's Fear, which is the second book of the Kingkiller Chronicle. If you're listening to us, presumably you've read it or you don't care about spoilers. That is all. Also, a word to our community. Please be kind to yourselves, one another, and the creators of the worlds that we love exploring. So that... Let's go ahead and get into our chapter, which is 88, Listening. This one is another one of the hangout episodes, so to speak, where it's just the core group of the bandit hunters, Quoth, Tempe, Hespa, Daydan, and Martin, hanging out around the campfire while this time Hespa tells a story. Or rather, completes a story after having given up in a huff the last time she tried to tell the story because Dedan is annoying. This is a completion of her story of Jax and the moon. We start right in the middle of the story because Quoth doesn't want to start over telling us that. 
However, I think it might be useful to just recap it a little bit for our audience. The beginning of the story, there's an unlucky boy named Jax. That is his main character trait, according to the story, at least as it is told. His main character trait that I can tell is that he is just an annoying twig. Yeah. Is there a better word for twig that you can cover this up with? Twig? Twig, yeah. Twig. Because I don't think twig is a good, like, a nice word. New. Not if we're using good place rules. Correct. So I'm just going to take you saying twig and replace all of the times that I said what he really is. So the thing that strikes me about Jax is he is someone who has had hardship in his life and has allowed that hardship to harden him. He starts off as a little boy, a little boy with nearsightedness, who can't see well enough to tell that there is a bright spot in the sky at night and only gets it once he's handed a pair of spectacles. There's something to be said about being shown something and not understanding it and refusing to understand it. Jax, first off, major incel vibes. Oh, yeah. Major incel vibes. Second, entitled as all heck and selfish and put upon. He's described as being unlucky, but I think that that's BS. A lot of his ill fortune, at least as an adult, is stuff that he brings on himself. I would say that it matters what lens you're looking at your life through. I think, okay, so there's something that I have said a lot before, which is you make your own luck. Does that mean that you can really make all the good things that you want happen? Not necessarily. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what I'm suggesting. I'm saying that you could have a day that has four kind of mediocre things in it, one kind of catastrophically awful thing in it, and like six pretty awesome things in it, and one amazing thing in it. And you could look at that multiple different ways. You could say that your day was eh. You could say that your day was pretty good. You could say that your day was absolutely awful. Or you could say that it was wonderful, depending on what you focus on. We as a society tend to focus on the catastrophically awful thing. I'd say that's also just human psychology. Like, it's the whole reason that review sites exist. Review sites don't exist to catalog when things work right. People don't write reviews when things work as they should. Or things are merely very good. Or merely okay. Who writes a three-star review? Right. Only monsters. Yeah, people are very quick to write a one-star review. And like something has to be so amazingly over-the-top good for them to be willing to write a five-star review. There's not generally going to be very many middle-of-the-road reviews. Because if it works as intended, you're just not going to bother taking time out of your day to tell people that. Generally. Not always, but generally. Now... The beginning of the story, just to refresh, is a tinker stumbles upon this unlucky boy who is an orphan, I believe, and tries to make him happy. This kid steadfastly refuses to be happy or let anyone make him happy or to smile. He is a miserable wretch of a human being. And I believe the tinker makes a wager that he can make this kid smile 
or happy or content at least. And he fails miserably. There's nothing in any of the three packs that he has that will make this kid happy. Lesson to be learned, things don't make you happy. They really don't. There are things that can make life easier, like someone who has shoes that are essentially just worn all the way through will have an easier time of it if you give them new shoes. But it's not the actual thing making them happy, it's the change in condition. It's the thing that makes the thing possible. Short end of the story, Jax just basically says, you didn't make me happy, give me all your stuff. Still doesn't make him happy. And one of the things that was in the packs is a pair of glasses. Brings his world into focus. He sees the moon and he says, that, that will make me happy. So he goes and he chases the moon for years. He keeps chasing it while he grows up. He wears through pairs of shoes. He runs through all the food in the bags. He trades away things from the bags to get new stuff. These must be really full bags. Bags of holding, if you will. Yes. There must be lots and lots of stuff because he's not doing anything to earn money. He's just going through all the seasons over and over and over again, chasing the moon. Goes to the road to Tinue. He goes past it. It's just that. That will make me happy. I'm going to chase that. He's like a dog chasing a car. He wouldn't know what to do if he actually caught it. The thing, though, is that he actually does come up with something to do once he catches it. And I'm very disappointed in him as a person. I think that that's enough of a recap of the beginning. Essentially, boy goes off, tries to chase the moon. So the story picks up with basically a montage of Jack's growing up on the road. And we get the sense that his hardships have only made him harder. He has not gotten to be kinder or more thoughtful. No empathy in that boy. And... As he's finally getting to the end of his supplies, he comes upon a hermit in a cave who seems a lot like the arcanist that were described as chasing the wind that Elksidal talks about. Seems a lot personality-wise like Elodin. A little bit. And what's interesting is he talks about listening to things. The way he interacts with the world, this unnamed arcanist, is very Elodin-like. He tells a knot to untie itself, and he talks to the knot as if it's an actual person and not just a thing. He listens to objects and people and deals out some pretty solid advice to anyone with the wisdom to hear it. He also hands out an amazing amount of snark to those who are not listening. <laughs> Hi, Jax. This kid just refuses to learn lessons from anyone. He's told that if you sit with me and are patient, I can teach you to listen better. And he doesn't listen to that and won't listen to the lessons. He just keeps barreling forward, making his own luck by his choices. There's something of Quoth to Jax. There's also something of Coat to the old man. Like Quoth, much like Jax, thinks that achievements and possessions and security will make him happy. He doesn't seem to care enough to figure out how to get these things in an effective way. He also tends to think of his relationships as possessions. In cell vibes. Mm-hmm. So 
Quoth, even though he can be charming and seems like a, a decent fellow, at least as he describes himself, generally doesn't think about his friends except as people who have done nice things for him. They're his friends because they're nice to him, not because he cares about them because he prioritizes them at all. He even thinks of Denna this way. He likes Denna because of how she makes him feel. And he doesn't spend a whole lot of time thinking about her feelings or trying to listen to her feelings. And I would say that thinking about the old man in this story a little bit like the Framing Devices version of Coat or Quoth is equally interesting to me because we don't know how many years it's been since the story he's telling took place. But as an adult, he's slowed down, not in the way that is like senility slowed down and not in the way that his incompetence slowed down, more that he has tempered some of the impulsive decision making. He's become more deliberative. Yeah, the same is true of this old man versus Jax. The old man is telling Jax to take the time to listen, to take the time to hear another's point of view, to care about another's point of view. That part of the reason that chasing the moon isn't working is because he's doing it as a selfish reaction. He wants to make the moon his. He wants to make the moon do some things. He wants to control the moon. This is a ridiculous premise, but it's just as ridiculous to want to control your partner, to want to insist that they don't do anything outside of your own rules. I kind of get the sense that Jax thinks that love is something that can be coerced. I kind of get the sense that because he grew up without having anyone really caring for him in his life, it's this need of his. So he feels like he needs to force it and he's allowing that hunger, that need to justify his maltreatment of others. He was mistreated. He grew up unloved. He grew up alone. So he thinks that the only way he can have what he needs is to force it to happen. I mean, we look at even simple things like opening a knot. He feels like he has to force it to open. He has to pick at it, poke at it, pry at it, but it won't open until the arcanist asks it nicely and listens to it and makes assurances that it won't be mistreated. That's just not how Jax goes about business. He feels that everything he has is stuff that he's either had to force to be his or coerced to be his. And he thinks it's this way with relationships too. He feels entitled to them. Mm -hmm. And when things get a little bit hard, he blames it on his ill luck. Not his poor decisions, not his inconsiderate nature, not his, frankly, his greed. We see this also in his response to the question, how was the road to Tenue? He says, it's long and hard and weary. His interpretation is that it's miserable. It's not guaranteed that everyone's interpretation would be that way. And I love the bit where the arcanist listens to his heart and it's, he says, your heart was broken before you even had a chance to use it. That sort of tells me that Jax has basically allowed his sorrow to prevent him from opening up to the world around him, to people around him. I thought that was a very evocative description. 
like it allows you to feel some sympathy and empathy for how Jack's got to be how he is without giving him a pass. And the Arcanist is giving him a path forward. He doesn't have to be this person who has to be defined by this broken heart of his. This yawning hunger doesn't have to be the only factor that defines Jack's. As we continue on in the story, Jax asks the old hermit's name, and the hermit says, no, I'm not giving you my name. If you knew my name, if you had my name, you'd be able to have some control over me. This is also the hermit listening to Jax and recognizing that Jax is not to be trusted. Jax is incredulous. He's like, you'd be under my power? Of course, that is the way of things. But you don't seem to be much for listening. The Hermit is very good at little digs, I've noticed. The Hermit, in this case, is far kinder to Jax than he probably deserves. And he does not look at things transactionally the way Jax does. Even when Jax thinks of himself as being generous, thinks he is doing so in a way that means that the other person owes him something. We've been in situations that are like this, where as simple as going to a restaurant with friends and ordering an appetizer, having to justify, I bought this for the whole table, but you can only have this amount. This is transactional. This is, I will be mad at you if you do something that is against what I bought, which is not necessarily the item itself, but the concept of sharing. Or we have agreed to do something, therefore we now have a say in how everything is done. Yes, kind of the same idea. Now, Jax thinks to himself, okay, maybe I do need help in capturing the moon. If I needed to capture a cow, I'd ask a farmer. So maybe to capture the moon, I need the help of an old weird guy. I don't know where this logical leap comes from, but... I mean, it's a weird quest, so... Weird dude. (laughs) And yet, as soon as he is told something that doesn't jive with what he thinks he wants... Once he is told that the way to get help is to do something he's not really keen to do, he's like, eh, never mind. Essentially, Jax says, hey, I want help. Person offers help. I don't want that kind of help. I want you to tell me what I want to hear. Yeah, he thinks that the old man will just go on his moon hunting quest with him as if this is something that is just a series of tasks that will then obligate the moon to be his. Possibly, or that the old man will give him a cheat sheet, or that the old man will just validate his methods without requiring him to change any of his own preconceived notions. Of course, that's not really what happens. No. This is when the old man is able to open up the third pack, when he is kind and gentle to the inanimate object that is the third pack, where Jax feels like, I've tried to force it. I've tried to coerce it. I've done everything that I possibly can to open this pack. And the old man says, you have not actually done everything because you didn't try being nice to it. It's here that we see the limits of Jax's worldview. Again, Jax thinks everything has to be something that he takes. It can't be something that was freely given to him. Like even something as simple as, oh, you shared something with me. So now I need to give you shoes or I need to give you something from my pack to pay for it. Besides just the transactional nature, this thought of my methods are wrong. My 
preconceived notions are wrong. I tried everything. Did you try this? No. Fork you. I didn't try that. No, but that's not a thing. I already thought that that wouldn't work. It never even occurs to him to try treating the knot with kindness and decency just to see what happens. This might just be an allegory for trying gently to open the knot rather than be nice to it. He was forcing it and it wouldn't open, but he never tried to calmly and patiently untie the knot. Part of it is I think it speaks to actually Jax's core worldview. He doesn't believe in understanding the world around him. He wants to just control it. So if we don't take it literally, right, the guy literally asked it, it could be as simple as the guy actually took the time to trace the path of the knot, but understand the way that the strings fit together. And then, like you said, gently move the strings so that they untie. I'll give you an example in real life. Every single time that we record, every time, our lav mics are twisted around the headphone cord. Every time. Every single time. Now, the easiest way that I have found to untangle things is not to try to force it because every single piece of these electronics, while not fragile, could easily be broken by force, by accident, if we're not careful. There are one, two, three, four, five places in this whole rig that I could just take a cord out of a socket to make it easier to untangle. And I do. Instead of tying it into further knots or damaging the electronics, I just find the way to loosen the knots. Yeah, and figuring out how can you make it easier for the ends to fit through the loops of the knot. You know, all of that is stuff that's just, again, comes with taking the time to observe and understand instead of trying to manipulate. Next paragraph, Jack says, you said that you used to chase the wind. Did you ever catch it? To which the old man says, in some ways, yes. And in other ways, no. There are many ways of looking at that question. You see, Jax does not see. Jax does not care because his next question is, could you help me catch the moon? He doesn't even take time to try to understand how some ways yes and some ways no is a legitimate answer. Right. There's an interesting story to be had there, obviously, right? One would think if someone takes the time to listen. Jax could say, oh, what do you mean by that? I'm fascinated. You know, and I kind of get the sense that if the wind is an ever moving thing, which is kind of its nature, it is defined by movement. By its very nature, it is movement. It is change. And so if you were to, quote, catch it, it would cease to be wind. You would change its nature. And then there would be other wind somewhere else. And you could do all the chasing in the world. And for all of that, to quote Princess Leia in Star Wars, the tighter you close your fist, the more will slip through your fingers. Leads directly into the next little bit. I might be able to give you some advice, but first you should think this over. When you love something, you have to make sure it loves you back, or you'll bring about no end of trouble chasing it. And the thing I've always heard is if you love something, you should be willing to let it go. Because if it stays, then you know that it's chosen to stay. The arcanist here is really laying out something I think that is fundamental, is 
when you love someone, you have to consider their agency. And if you truly care about them, you have to be prepared for them to not feel the same way about you. And you can't force them to feel that way about you. You have to accept it. And I mean, we see the whole trope of unrequited love as something throughout fiction. And it's as much about understanding that the person that you care about is not obligated to feel the same way about you. And it can hurt. It's real. But at the same time, if you can't accept that, you aren't really prepared to love someone. And I think that this is something that on the one hand, it's easy to think that, oh, if I do the right things, say the right things, I can make this person love me or I can trick this person into loving me. They're not loving you at that point. They're loving the facade that you've put on. And even then, I don't know that they're really loving. Love comes from mutual consent and it comes from people being vulnerable with one another. Mutual understanding. And exploration. I think about like our relationship, it's defined by our vulnerability with one another. And it's about our willingness to be our messy, imperfect selves and know that no matter who we are, no matter how we mess up, no matter how we fail one another, there is still love and that you know, we overcome that. I'm going to turn that a little bit too. It's not seeing a failure as the end. It's seeing the failure as a middle. Yeah, I like that. In medias res. Yes. So if something bad happens, it's not the end of the story. It's just one more obstacle or thing that we learn from. I have a perfect one, actually. Moving fragile objects, including Lego, sucks. We don't have a whole lot of breakable things, and we don't have a lot of permanently breakable things. There are a couple of reasons for this. Neither one of us are particularly dexterous nor very careful. I'm probably more so, but it's almost a wash sometimes. We were packing up my Lego, and I asked Will not to touch some of the stuff because I knew where it had weak points or where it would kind of be tricky if you didn't know exactly how it was built. I have a lot of the big buildings which come apart in three sections and I didn't want him picking it up and then all of a sudden it just failing at the weak points that are supposed to be there and then breaking because they are also thousands of pieces. And I had one single Lego set that has a lighting kit attached to it. The lighting kit is heavy and also not actually attached by anything other than very fragile wires. And I'm over in one corner. I asked him not to put that away, not to do anything with the stuff that's fragile. And he's being helpful. He's already going over some of the ones that he's perfectly confident with. And I hear about a thousand little tiny dots fall down <laughs> through cracks in the like metal rack that we had it on and all over the carpet and all over my piano and all of these other things. And I freaked out because I was already having a high anxiety day. I didn't want to be at the old place. I had a whole lot of things and I also have a noise sensitivity. I have a instant panic reaction when I hear things breaking or when I hear things falling or when I hear things loud that are just all of a sudden. This was everything. <laughs> and I was not nice. 
I'm going to leave it at that, but I was not nice about it. And then I went to go see if the lighting kit was intact still. It wasn't. It was absolutely broken. Like, I can't fix it lighting kit broken. This is one of my favorite sets. It's the ship in the bottle, if you know what it is. And it does have like a ton of little itty bitty tiny blue dots. We were finding little itty bitty blue dots on the floor for the next couple weeks. Right. But also one of the actual pieces broke. Sometimes that can happen on the weaker pieces. Lego is wonderful. You can just go and ask them to resend anything that is still currently in print. And they will. And I really appreciate that. But overall, it ruined the rest of my day and I freaked out. I was having an anxiety attack. I was not kind to Will over this whole thing. Who Will already feeling absolutely like dog food over this whole thing. And I knew that and I didn't want to be angry, but I was angry. That's not the end of the story. I was able to put most of it back together. I was able to contact Lego and say, hey, I need a replacement for this one little broken bit. We found what I hope is all of the little tiny blue dots. They replaced the carpet in the old house. They may have a couple of extra little shiny blue Lego, who knows? But we found enough where it looks like it's pretty much all of them. The lighting kit is still being made. Will was able to replace it for me. and. We continued cleaning up the room and we were able to get stuff put away and brought home. I'm not currently mad at him for having accidentally broken my Lego. I am annoyed and I will ask him to please not do that kind of thing again. If I've asked him not to touch it, please don't touch it. Does it mean that that will never happen again? No. Does it mean that I'll handle myself better next time? Maybe. Probably not. I would say incrementally, though. Things get better and... You know, I know that I can't make you not have an anxiety attack and I can't force my hand-eye coordination to be more dexterous or anything like that. I mean, the whole be more careful advice is probably the worst advice in the world. Which is why I didn't actually want you to be more careful. I just didn't want you to touch it. Right. So maybe next time. Maybe next time I do better at just not touching it. Recognizing the limits of my abilities is a step that I can take that helps us not have to be in that particular situation. But while it was a bit of a tense rest of the day, it's not the end of the world and it's not the end of our relationship. Not by a long shot. Yeah. I mean, that's just it. Every time we run into one of these scenarios, like in the heat of the moment, it feels like terrible. And then we have time to cool off and think about it and think about what we can do differently and how we can be kinder to one another. Because, like, I never want to be the cause of pain for Phoenix, especially. And so I don't like that I caused pain. And I know Phoenix does not want to cause me pain. And you know when you hurt me and I know when I hurt you. We both know that if we could be any other way, we would. And we do our best not to be that way. Yeah. And, you know, afterwards, once we've had time to cool down, we're then able to take accountability for how we've treated one another and, you know, work to reconnect a bit. And each time we do that, I think that our bond grows. 
it's not that we won't make mistakes. It's that we are better about recovering from our mistakes. It's something that I've been thinking about a lot. Like, you know, we have instances where for one reason or another, we don't handle ourselves in ways that we're proud of. We're human beings. I hate to break it to you, Internet. We make mistakes with ourselves, with one another, with just general life. And we're not always going to be able to prevent those mistakes from occurring in the future, but we can adjust how well we are responding to them and how we treat one another in the aftermath. And there are times when it feels like everything is, you know, super keyed up and super amped up to 11. And that isn't always an accurate representation of how everything really is. And every time we have a chance to cool down, we get a chance to dial that back and focus on the things that bring us together. Like for a long time, you know, in our old place, our kitchen was not big enough for us to cook together. And we would bump into one another. We didn't have enough counter space to actually work together. It just led to a lot of frustration when we cooked together. And it was something that caused a fair amount of strife between the two of us. It got to the point where it was easier just for one person to do the cooking at any given time because it was only an invitation for trouble to have the other person involved. And neither of us was happy with that because in the past, we'd actually taken a lot of pleasure in cooking together. As we've moved into our new place, we have a lot more counter space again. So that's been nice. And we also have good floor space. And it was just amazing to feel like able to move in the same space and work together without running into friction all of a sudden. And it made this massive difference suddenly. Like, I think it was something simple as you just walked by me while I was getting something out of the fridge and didn't bump into me and then went on about your day as if nothing had happened. Because and nothing happened. Because nothing had happened. And I was just like, did, did you just notice that? And then, you know, we have slowly started cooking together again. And it's just proof that those times when we couldn't don't have to define our future. What was doesn't have to define what is and what will be. And you know, that's what love is. It's recognizing that things can change and embracing that change and looking for ways to emphasize the changes that you like. I'm kind of speechless, but I kind of feel like I need to go back to the story so that we can continue the podcast from the point that it's supposedly supposed to be. Okay. Jax asks a simple question of how do I know if the moon loves me back? And the old guy says, you could listen. Novel concept. To which Jax is pretty much like, nah. <laughs> Which just makes me want to like pound my head into a like head desk. Like they just really, really. Well, how long would that take? A couple of years to properly teach you how to listen. Fork it. No. Yeah. I mean, this is the age old question. How do I know if the person I like likes me back? 
right? Talk to them. Well, not just talk to them, listen to them. So to me, when I say talk to them, it is implicit that that also means listen to them, but I guess that's not always the case. There are so many relationship problems that happen that the solution is talk with them and listen to them. I keep going back to The Flash. I like that show just fine. I hate the trope of, I love this person, so I can't possibly talk to them and tell them my whole truth. What? I love them and trust them with my entire being, but I have to protect them so I won't talk to them. No, no, that's not how this works. At this point, like Barry Allen is, he's superhuman. He doesn't really have to worry about a whole lot of harm that a normal person can do to him. Right. So that's why they use his family. Right. Because it's all emotional harm that they could do to him. And so to protect himself and others, he just lies to them. I hate this. Anyway, let's keep going. because I've harped on this before. The old dude says, well, I'm willing to teach you. You want to stick around for a little while? It's tricky proper listening. But once you have it, you'll know the moon down to the bottom of her feet. And Jax is like, nope, that's going to take too long. I'm just going to go try to catch her. I can talk with her and I can make (laughs) it's that word again. I can make her do whatever I want. I can make this happen. I can force, coerce, guilt, manipulate, because you're not willing to listen. Well, not only that, he's not willing to take the chance that the moon might not feel the same way. He's not prepared to take that risk. And love is risk. And so the old man sees right through him, says, you don't really want to catch her. Not really. Will you trail her through the skies? Of course not. You want to meet her. That means you need the moon to come to you. And overall, we have miscommunication after miscommunication of like, how do I do that? Well, you could offer her something of yourself and be vulnerable, but that's not what Jax hears. What Jax hears is you could offer her something out of your pack. You can give her a gift. Like this is some sort of romance in a Bioware game. (laughs) If you give the right combination of gifts and select the right conversation tree, love. And the old man is just like, that's not what I meant. (laughs) Full of snark. I love this guy. And Jax just doesn't listen. This is where the opening of the pack happens. More and more and more, if you are listening or paying attention to the story or paying attention to what's being said, You understand that the advice really comes down to treat the other person well, treat the other beings in your circle of influence well, treat your things with respect, treat your other people with respect, don't treat people as things. There's a lot of these not so subtle lessons that the old dude is trying to teach Jax and thereby also teach us. And... The guy gets the pack open and Jax finally gets to see what's in it. And of course, he's disappointed. The old guy is like, these are actually kind of interesting. Yeah. So what did he find in there? There was the stone flute and then there was the folding house and then there was the magic box. These all have some interesting things that I wanted to talk a little bit about. 
So the first thing we have is a wind instrument. I mean, hey, name of the wind, it's right there in the title. That's something fascinating right there. The other things though, so we've got this folding house, which is basically a uh, Bigby's floating manor. <laughs> right, it starts off, it looks like a two by four. And as you unfold it, it turns into a full on manor house. And if you take the time to do it properly, I'm sure it would be very nice. Although you get the sense that Jax is the sort of person whose Ikea projects are just always cattywampus a little bit. Not quite right. What I get is Blind Al trying to build Ikea furniture in Deadpool. A little bit, yeah. And it's always kind of falling apart. Things aren't really quite where it should be. Like, but we've, we've fast forwarded. And then there's the box, which I think is kind of like the box that Kvothe is always trying to open back at the Waystone Inn. The handheld version of the box. Contains a name. Not yet, it doesn't. But it's perfect for holding one. Yes. So in perfect, Jax is a selfish idiot. He starts trying to unfold the house right then and there. He's impulsive. He doesn't care how his decisions affect other people. He doesn't really want to listen to another person saying, hey, you're going to ruin the neighborhood. He's just like, well, this is my thing. And now I'm going to do what I want with my thing. He's like the kid who just rips open his presents Christmas morning and just sprays them all over the floor. Sprays all the packaging all over the floor. And just kind of dumps everything out. Yes. No one's taught him to savor the moment. And then... Also, I would say without saying thank you to anyone. But we also learned that the flute can perfectly mimic birdsong and call even sleeping birds that shouldn't be around during the day. Not sure how useful that really is. It's a neat party trick. Maybe there's other uses. Hopefully there's other uses. That really doesn't actually seem <laughs> to have much use to me. Not practical use, but it definitely has metaphorical use. If we think about perfectly mimicking a bird song, like in many ways, those songs are the names of said birds. And so when he perfectly mimics the call of the nightjar, for instance, even during the day, it summons nightjars. If you think about it, a bird, right? Its name for itself isn't going to be something that sounds like human language, because they don't have human vocal cords. If they even have names for themselves, but let's go on. In this fantasy, we're saying they do. Okay. Because all things have names, names have meaning, and names bind a thing. And so when he does the call, he's basically saying that bird's name in the language that it understands. Like the nightjar doesn't call itself a nightjar. So he blows the perfect bird song, just like the nightjar, that right there is the nightjar's name in its own language. And then a bunch of nightjars arrive because they've heard their name. And if you know somebody's name, you will have a certain power over them. Much like naming. I gotcha. Yeah. Interesting power, again. And then the third thing is a sinister tiny little box that is heavier than it ought to be based on its size. And it makes the old man shiver and look away from it. He knows that it's empty, and for his troubles, he is 
questioned by the impertinent little creature that is in front of him saying, how do you know? Because I listened. He also says, most things speak quietly. These things are shouting. Part of it is all of these are things that look humble, but they have a much more vast metaphysical capability. There's something magic about them. Once again, the old hermit asks Jax if he would like to stay and learn. And once again, fork off. You've given me some things to think about, and I've taken the absolute wrong lesson. And he just kind of goes off. The old man says, that's not actually what I said. In that kind of resigned way that someone who knows they're not being listened to will say a thing. The next morning, Jax keeps following the moon up to the mountains, hoping to be able to reach higher and higher into the sky. And finally, he comes to the highest peak and he decides he's going to set up his folding manor house. He does it poorly. And of course, it's also a lot bigger than he expected. You mind if I take hold your book here? Because there's some things in the description of this that I think have some narrative significance to the story here. So let's see. Everything about the place was slightly skewed. In one room, you could look out the window at the springtime flowers, while across the hall, the windows were filmed with winter's frost. It could be time for breakfast in the ballroom, while twilight filled a nearby bedroom. Because nothing in the house was true, none of the doors or windows fit tight. They could be closed, even locked, but never made fast. And as big as it was, the mansion had a great many doors and windows, so there were a great many ways both in and out. This actually reminds me of the description of the Fey Realm, where you have areas where it kind of leaks in. The skies are strange and time moves differently throughout the Fey. You have some places where it's moving really fast, other places where time moves really slowly. And it's hard to tell where it's going to go. It's unpredictable. And people can kind of bounce in and out of it without even realizing it sometimes. They're not careful. We also get another instance of, or perhaps it was just that Jax was unlucky as ever, talking about the unfolding of the house and making it into kind of a mess. He didn't take the time to do it properly. But once again, it's not about his faults, his failings. It's all about his luck. He made his luck by doing it badly. Also, the assumption that he can't take the time to fix it. Like, it's one thing to get it wrong on the first try and then go back and fix it and adjust it. And, you know, with time and effort, you can make it okay. <laughs> For instance, there was a cabinet in your office room that the hinges were a little bit wonky. And you know what it took to fix them? a screwdriver, and about five minutes. Yeah, just a little bit of time and effort. It can be fixed. And Jax thinks, oh, no, it's just because I'm unlucky. And, I mean, I can understand where he's coming from. You know, as a kid growing up with fine motor control issues, I was the one that was always dealing with what seemed like the broken thing. In any given class that I was in, when they were handing out equipment, I was the one that always seemed to have the defective one, the defective piece of equipment or the one that was just slightly off. And a lot of that was as much just my own difficulty taking care of a thing or using it gently. I'm not saying that it was my fault or anything like that, but I wasn't unlucky in the sense that there was an aura 
that meant that I always just attracted the things that were broken. It was just that because I was a kid with motor control issues, I had a hard time manipulating things as easily as my peers did. I would also say not to necessarily say that this is a very, very bad thing, but it's something that could be better. A lot of things are made and designed in a way that does not accommodate rough use. Absolutely. There are always going to be people who are harder on their things than other people. And it is not a market against them or anything like that at all. I am one such person. Right. No one will get mad at you for running through your socks quicker than I do, even if we wear them equally. Yeah. Just because of biomechanics and the way I move. Yeah, it happens. It's simply just an acknowledgement of what kind of person I am, and it's not a bad thing. But in this particular instance, they're saying not that Jax is incapable. They're not saying that Jax is also limited by his own agility, no. shall we say, or dexterity. They are specifically laying out this story as Jax claims to be unlucky while also doing things in a half-fashioned way. Exactly. Well, and that's just what I'm getting at. Like, as I've grown up, I've learned that, yeah, I sometimes have to take a little bit of extra time and care and put in a little bit of extra effort to get my things to do the things that I see other people doing with them. And it is not that the things are broken or that I'm unlucky. It is that I have to do a little bit of extra work. And I can do it. It's doable. It's achievable. I can have things that are actually put together pretty decently if I take the time to do it. And if I take the time to fix it up when I get it wrong on initial assembly. And I like sometimes having that opportunity to fix what I got wrong. Jack's here, though, his framing of himself as unlucky means that as far as he's concerned, he bears no responsibility for the way things turn out. The deck was always just stacked against him. There was nothing he can do about it. So he just says, yep, it's always going to be broken. It's always going to be crooked because that's just who I am. And I think that's the difference. Our next scene was after rushing through trying to build the house, because of course he can't wait one more day or one more week to do it right. He, Jax, finishes, quote, all the effort that he's going to put into this house, rushes up to the top of the tower and calls for the moon using the flute. And she arrives. And that's where I think the flute's value is. It is something that calls the names of things by the words that they themselves would use. That's the magic of it. So the moon arrives. They talk for a little while. And she seems to legitimately enjoy the conversation, but eventually wants to go back home. And Jax says, please stay with me. She says, but I want to go. And he says, but I've made you this thing. This is for you. I half-fashed it. That shouldn't matter. It should still be enough to make you stay. And I mean, honestly, let's break down some of the flaws in his argument here. Even if he whole-fashed it, even if everything came out perfectly, he thinks that because he has done the thing for the moon, the moon now owes him that the moon is now obligated to be his in some fashion, regardless of the quality of the house, 
regardless of anything else. She wants to go home. She's been away too long. She's got her own life. She wants her own agency, her own decisions, her own comforts. She's got her own jobs. She's the moon. Her job is to control the tides. It's to light the night. It's all of these things that, you know, in a cosmic sense, they have nothing to do with Jax. You know, the rest of the planet relies on the moon. It's not just Jax. What makes Jax special? But she does say, if you play your flute for me again, I'll come back. Not good enough. So Jax manipulates her. Jax says, okay, I'll let you go. But I've given you three things, a song, a home, and my heart. If you must go, will you not give me three things in return? It's a trap. Yeah. It's an icky, icky thing that he's doing. The moon, though, says, if it is mine to give, ask and I will give it. I would ask a touch of your hand. This strikes me a little bit like Gimli having his conversation with Galadriel. It could be viewed as sweet, but we know who Jax is. She does so. Second, I would beg a kiss. I wouldn't, but if it's her decision, it's her decision, and it was her decision, so she kissed him. Both of these actions leave Jax feeling very lovely and wonderful, and he actually smiles, or starts to. He seems to think he's going to be happy. She asks, and what is this third thing? Your name, that I might call you by it. And she's like, just my name? Yes. Not knowing that Jax understands that naming gives him power over something. So she whispers her name against his ear and he traps it in his little sinister iron box and says, now that I have your name, I have you. You can't leave me now. It's gross. Yeah. I think what we see with that is the way that even in a case where, you know, someone seems to be reciprocating, that does not give you right to control them, does not give you right to own them or treat them as anything less than a whole person. Now, to make this into an allegory, the end of the story is Jax didn't do the capturing of her name properly and only captured part of her name. And because of this, sometimes she's able to slip out through the cracks in the door or the windows and make her way back into the sky. But he can always call her back. And that is why the moon now has phases in the sky. We also hear sort of the flip side of this version from Felurian. So stick a pin in that one. We'll get to that. And this is what gives me that connection between Jax's manor house and the Feywild. The Twilight Room specifically makes me think of the Fey. Yeah. There are bookends on this chapter. We start off with things are actually seeming to be more happy around the camp. My suspicion is that the Dan and Hespa may have gone off into the woods together. I think that the waggling of eyebrows is appropriate here. They're waggling. Don't worry. This is a podcast, a famous visual medium. (laughs) (laughs) As you waggle your eyebrows. So I think that they may have had a little tryst out in the woods. And they're all happy with one another right now. And things are going well, so everybody's happy. During the story, there are a few little asides and breaks that are like when Hespa covered the when you love something, you have to make sure it loves you back. And 
Dedan looks like he swallowed his tongue. There's a couple of those little asides which I find to be comical. But we have the breaking of the story at the end, the breaking of the enchantment, where Hespa looks around and says, and that is why the moon is always changing. And Dedan compliments Hespa and says, that is one hell of a story. And we learn that Hespa learned this story from her mother who learned it from her mother. And there's an implication that Dedan feels like maybe the two of them might have a daughter together that Hespa can then tell the story to. I think it's kind of cute and sweet and unrealistic because I don't think that the two of them are communicating to each other enough or openly or anything where they would actually wind up making a loving pair for one another. I think that they both deserve better. I think also... If you were to stop the story right there, that would be your happily ever after, Mark. But that's not how life works. Like, you have two people, they hit it off, but that doesn't mean that they're always happy, that they never have any bad days or anything like that. Like, you and I, we love each other dearly, and we have bad days. We have days where I say the wrong thing and it sets you off. You say the wrong thing and it sets me off. And that's life. Like, (laughs) the question is, what happens after that? Right. Now, important thing to note for all of that, neither one of us gets violent. Oh, no. Setting each other off is more like triggering a, a meltdown. We say things that make one another angry or frustrated or put us into a bad space. And that's life. We're human beings. We mess up. We each have our own personalities and sometimes our personalities or our head weasels or our neurospiciness doesn't work well together. But that doesn't mean that that's the end of our story. However, in this case, it seems like the rarer instances of an emotion are the loving ones for Dedan and Hespa and the near constant emotional state between the two of them and also between all five of the people in this group is bickering, anger, rubbing each other wrong. Heyo, not what I meant, but like bumping into those little spiky bits and not really finding the ones that are comforting. And I think part of that is because all of these are people who have worked their entire life to avoid being vulnerable. The moments where we see Hespa and Daydan connect over the story are moments of vulnerability and in their day-to-day life as mercenaries and caravan guards and fighters, vulnerability is not something that they typically allow themselves. We also have little fights between Dedan and Martin and then we have sparring matches, like verbal sparring matches between different parts of the group. And then we also have Another example of how Tempe just doesn't view nakedness as sexuality or as threateningness. Like, Hespa went to go take a bath. Same place that everyone else would take a bath. So Tempe goes to take a bath and freaks Hespa out because he's naked. I think that there needs to be more communication of, okay, to me, this is not a sexual act. This is not a threatening act. I don't like to be dirty. And at the same time, Hespa can say, 
Okay, for the sake of my boundaries, I would prefer to have privacy while I bathe. Yes. And those are appropriate things to say. But then there is a part that I think is supposed to be comical that I don't necessarily take as funny, where Dedan would have clocked Tempe if he had been able to actually have a fight with a man who was naked without looking at the naked bits. There are a lot of insecurities just wrapped up in that one little bit. Yeah. So, and then the weather turned, it grew foggy and damp, and it soured everyone's mood slower, and it made the search for bandits even harder, and then it started to rain. Now, I don't know if you've been around, like, a campsite that is just drenched in rain and everything that you own is just damp. I know you have. I know. I'm looking at your face going, wait a second, you don't? I've been camping in the Northwest where the closest thing to the blue sky is a blue tarp. <laughs> yes. You have been in camps that are like 10 miles away from other campsites that didn't get rained on, but you did. Less than 10 miles across the street. That is awful and miserable. And like, but, but when you're damp oh yeah when your shoes squelch mm -hmm. it's just not gonna be better oh no and it's not even things where it's like actively wet but it's just like that little layer of extra moisture like when you put your shoes on even if they've been covered up overnight but just because of condensation there's just a little bit of extra moisture when you put them in or when you put a sweatshirt on that's supposed to help keep you warm, but because it's mildly damp. Yeah. It just doesn't. Yeah. But it's still better than being in a t-shirt. Yeah. But you're still cold. You're still miserable. Yeah. I have been camping in the Pacific Northwest. That's why I can't get you camping now. Not that I want to. Yeah. This is just not fun for me. That was Girl Scout camps every single time because our Girl Scout camps were also in November. Terrible timing. <laughs> Absolutely terrible timing. But anyway, with that, I would like to kind of go over a little bit of the implications of this story to the entire story as a whole. Yeah. So there is obviously some speculation that Jax is Ajax is Haliax which makes sense. This is basically a villain origin story if we ever heard one. There is an element of tragedy there, but then everything that they do compounds it and then twists them into something even worse. And I'll say, to be fair, sometimes when something bad happens in the morning, it sets your whole day off. And then you notice more when you stub your toe or you feel it more when the hot water heater is empty and you just wanted to shower, or you get more annoyed when the cat tries to eat all the cords in the back of the TV, whatever. It's the whole expression of someone who woke up on the wrong side of the bed. Most things in your day might be just fine, but the ones that you focus on are the shirty ones. So Jax's life started out kind of crappy, and he just compounds it by focusing on the negative of every instance of every part of his life, which is pretty much the way that you create a villain. Yeah. You know, he's someone who specifically kidnapped the moon. Those aren't heroic actions. Even if we can understand that there's things that he went through that he shouldn't have had to, 
There's things in his life that didn't deserve to happen to him. But it's everything else that he did after them that changes it. It's how he handled it. He didn't let those things make him more empathetic. He didn't let his hardships make him more caring. It just made him more callous. Again, that's the villain. And so that is a potential tie-in to the greater story. Other tie-ins, other things that you've noticed, again, the Twilight Room might be the Fey Realm. The moon might be going directly to the Fey Realm from all the little cracks in the foundation and the walls and the windows and all that other stuff. There's also the box, which has a clear, maybe that's the box that's in Quoth's room, leading to speculation of maybe the thing that's in Quoth's box is somebody's name. The moon is also a parallel to Denna and also a parallel to Lyra. Yeah, I think it also serves as a warning of the sort of person that Kvothe could become if he's not careful. There are a lot of parallels between Jax and Kvothe that, you know, if Kvothe makes the wrong choices, that could be him. You know, someone who covets other people and their relationships, someone who is possessive of the people in his life and tries to control them and manipulate them and imprison them. Someone who lets his own insecurities justify his poor treatment of others. All of these are things that could be Kvothe, you know, were he to make the wrong decisions. Because the thing to remember is that for all of the hardships that both Kvothe and Jax have endured, they still have agency. And what they do in response to those is what makes them heroes or villains. I don't know that Kvothe has really thought about this a lot. He's justified every decision he's made for good or ill. And very rarely has he taken responsibility. We haven't seen kid Kvothe certainly take responsibility, though I think adult Kvothe owns up to some things that maybe child Kvothe doesn't. But also adult Kvothe isn't shy about showing us the audience and also Chronicler and Bast by necessity, the dirtier, less savory bits the parts he's not proud of, the things where he's made mistakes. And I think in this case, that's a way for him to take accountability. Yeah, there's some bits where he says, you know, if I'd known then what I know now, I'd have done something differently. And this was a mistake that I made. This was a thing that was weighing on me. And these are the choices that I made that compounded the problem. I think that's something really powerful. And I think that's what separates Kvothe from Haliax, from Jax, from Ajax whatever you want to call them. And I think it's always worth remembering, yep, we can have compassion for someone without having to agree with their choices. Without condoning their actions. And we can also use that to be a warning to ourselves, some of the justifications that we might use to hide responsibility for the ways we've harmed others. And yeah, nobody's asking for perfection, but we can always do better. So those are some things that I was thinking of as I went through all of this. How about you? Very similar. Again, seeing the older, wiser man compared to the younger, impulsive Jax. Seeing how the old hermit doesn't give his real name, or any name really, where at the beginning we have Coat instead of Quoth. The old man saying, if I gave you my name, you'd have power over me. And so Coat has hidden his own name. 
Now, the question is, is Kvothe's name the name in the box? Is it partially in the box? Is it all in the box? Did Fast let it out when all of this started? Did somebody else let it out? Does somebody else know how to open that box? We know that Bast is trying to open the box. Whatever's in there, he wants it out. Is the name, presumably, what we consider to be the name that's stuffed in the box, is that name Denna or Denna's real name? Has Quoth been using a pseudonym for Denna the entire time? Or is that really her name? Is he true naming her when he calls her Denna? Who knows? Well, Pat Rostis presumably knows and he'll tell us in book three whenever that happens. I have hope. One of these days he'll get around to it. We should all be patient. Much like Jax should be patient. Yeah, like I say, when he gets around to it. No rush. Also, there's a little bit of of Jax not knowing how to unfold the house correctly or not knowing how to do certain things and not asking for help. Not asking for help smacks so much of Quoth. Yep. It's the sort of dogged independence it is a lesson that he's had to learn that made sense in certain circumstances that is not always true. Survival mechanisms are great when you're in a survival situation, but not every situation is a survival situation that those help in. So. All right. Now, I don't want to talk too much about it, but I do have a Fernemos, and I would say it's the old man. Oh, easily. He reminds me of Rafiki. A little bit, yeah. <laughs> He is, he is Rafiki from The Lion King. This whole thing strikes me as a situation very similar to The Lion King, except I have more sympathy and care towards Simba than I do to Jax. Oh, yeah. Simba is someone who is not seeking to control or anything like that. In fact, he's just looking to escape his pain. But like Rafiki is kind of the vibe I'm getting off of the old man. Obviously, the reasons that I think that he is our Phronimos this week boil down to he wants Jax to learn to listen. Also, he is just as snarky about saying things like that's not what I meant as I am in conversations where I am not being listened to. It reminds me so much of some of my traits and habits when I am talking to what is essentially a brick wall. But yeah, that's who I would choose. I think it's a good choice. And I think he also just generally provides some good life advice for how to treat the people that we care about better. Listen to them, ask them nicely, apologize for mistakes, and try to do better. None of these things are things that Jax did. All right, so we are skipping the interesting fact because we do not have one. So no one has piped up with an interesting fact for us to share on our Discord, and I'm a little sad. Oh, well. Oh, one thing before we continue on, I do want to actually say I have set it up so that you can have a two week free trial to our Patreon, patreon.com slash waystonepod. No obligation whatsoever at all to continue past that. I, I'm not asking for y'all to pay us. I'm saying we are giving you two weeks for free because I would love it if somebody besides just us wanted to listen to our Sandman episodes. We have five of them. We would love to share them. We also have a couple of episodes on The Princess and Mr. Wiffle and 
they were done when we were very, very early in our process of learning how to podcast. So if they're not great, I'm sorry. Also, there are a couple of kind of game show-esque, not really, but kind of, episodes about trying to guess whether or not a King Killer Chronicle theory was something that is a real theory out there in the world or something that Will just kind of pulled out of his own ash. So we would love it if you joined up on that tier. It's a free trial to that one tier that gets you all of those extra podcasts and gives you two weeks to listen to them. Anyway, on to the next bit. So now for our thing of the week here, I've got one for you. And that is going to be Ryan Johnson's Glass Onion. Okay, so first off, we both loved Knives Out. I have loved the movie Clue since I was a little kid. I used to really, really love Murder by Death, except it's got some very questionable parts in it that are making it more difficult for me to absolutely adore the movie as much as I would have liked looking at it as an adult. Some things didn't age well. Many things didn't age well, but I like the concept. I like murder mysteries. Actually, I really love murder mystery type movies, especially if they're comedies. And I think Benoit Blanc is an incredibly iconic modern detective. He's the last of the gentleman sleuths. (laughs) What I love is, for one thing, Daniel Craig is clearly having a ball. Every time he slips on that Southern fried accent. Foghorn leghorn. (laughs) One thing I'm noticing is as we look at these Benoit Blanc stories is they are really fundamentally stories about the way that money changes people. The first movie, Knives Out, is a story of old money where it's all about inherited wealth and the way people change because of this wealth that they've inherited. The entitlement that they feel to keep this wealth that they've inherited without doing anything for it, without earning it. And then in Glass Onion, he examines sort of entrepreneurial wealth, the wealth that comes from being able to say the right things at the right time to the right people to get them to pay you a lot of money. You know, the characters in here, particularly Miles Braun, are kind of the tech CEO equivalent. This is examining sort of the new wealth cult of the Silicon Valley programmer, where everyone is speaking the language of venture capital and using that to wield disproportionate wealth and excess. I mean, it is fundamentally excess for the sake of excess. So even as it looks less restrained Like, I mean, the thrombies are performatively restrained in the way that they wield their wealth and power. But you compare that to Miles and his cohort, and they're all flamboyant in how they flaunt their wealth. And that is as much a part of the performance as anything else. I love, love, love the send up also of these self-entitled rich a-holes. Yeah. The piece that really strikes me every single time because we've watched it a few times because it's it's a fun movie to watch there is a part where kate hudson shows up in the height of the pandemic where everyone has a different issue wearing a mask some people just don't some people 
are wearing the ones that are falling down their face. Some people just like, there's all the different ones that are like incompetent, the, you know, the, the nose decking where essentially your nose sticks out on top of the mask. You're only covering your mouth, which does absolutely nothing. There is just a whole slew of these things. And you've got Benoit Blanc properly wearing his mask, like a normal human. And then Kate Hudson shows up and she is wearing a mesh, not even mesh. Net. Net. That is a good, a net mask. That's not the thing that's funny to me. The thing that's funnier to me is she is the one that then complains about how everyone has to wear masks all the time. Well, it feels so good to be out of that mask. <laughs> right. It's so oppressive. And I'm going to be real here. I don't like wearing a mask. I still wear an N95 going to all of the stores. I wear an N95 going to my guitar lesson. It makes me feel better. It really does. I also have not been sick, knock on all the wood, the whole time that the pandemic existed. The last three years I have, actually the last four years, I don't think I've really been sick for the last four years. Just the last time I was sick was the one where we got catastrophically sick right when we moved. The other thing about Glass Onion is that it's filled with fun little twists and like any good mystery, the clues are all right there. Like none of it is just stuff that you could not have foreseen at all. Honestly, like I found the mystery to be the least compelling part of Knives Out. The characters are fantastic and that's what makes the movie for me. And if I thought that the mystery was unimportant the last time, or at least a little less important than the rest of everything. Oh my goodness. <laughs> the mystery isn't the point of Glass Onion at all. In fact, it's right there. Everything is literally right in front of you the entire time. What's really important is seeing how people twist themselves up trying to figure this thing out that is blatantly obvious right there. And much like our lens for this episode, I think it does in medias res pretty much spot on. Yeah, we're meeting the people in the middle of a story. And we do go back to the beginning to play out what happened and explain. So with that, I think it's time for seven words. So I have the books this time and I had a few choices. So I've got, you want to catch her, do you? And I have, I can hear it in your voice. Could you help me catch the moon? And finally, the one that I actually picked was, that is one hell of a story. I like that. And you had seven words from life. What did you choose? So before we go to my seven words from life, there is another seven word sentence that I really like in this section, and it is, time is what we make it here, which would be sweet and loving and lovely if Jax weren't the one that said it. Right, because he's using it to be manipulative and coercive. But I think that the sentiment taken out of context is actually quite nice. It works. Okay. This is a little cheeky and also a little lazy, but before we started, Will was like, oh yeah, and we're doing our seven words. And I'm like, oh, did we do seven words last time? So that is my seven words. Did we do seven words last time? It fits. Anyway, with that, I'd like to thank you for potting with me. And thank you for potting with me. And thanks for listening to Tales from the Waystone. 
Join us next time on Tales from the Waystone as we cover Chapter 89 of The Wise Man's Fear through the lens of rising action. We would like to thank our friend Shawnee Jang for our theme music. And many thanks to Patrick Rothfuss for creating a world that we've enjoyed exploring. Audio production, editing, and social media coordination courtesy of me, Phoenix McCullough. And writing and project management courtesy of me, Will McCullough. If you would like to help support us and have the means to do so or want a free trial, check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash waystonepod, where you can listen to us have conversations about Sandman, which is another one of those series that we absolutely adore. Or, you know, if you want to pay a little bit more, you could probably get a little bit of art from me. Who knows? And as always, here's to one more day above the roses. To one more day above the roses. Ding! Ding. Always so fun to listen to these when I'm editing.